Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and welcome back to The Deal Room Podcast, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Now, today we have on the show Greg Will, the principal of Armstrong Dawson, talking all about his experience in business acquisitions that have made him a better advisor when he's been sitting on the client side of the table. Now, Greg certainly is no stranger to the world of business sales and acquisitions. He's worked in professional practice for over 20 years and prior to his practice at Armstrong Dawson had in fact been a partner within first and second tier professional service firms. So he has certainly seen his fair share of business sales and acquisitions. But in this episode, he's really drilling into his experience when he and his business acquired a practice and he had the opportunity to sit on the other side of the table, the client side, and experience what it feels like from the client side. And this provided many insights that we work through in our discussion today which I think are really insightful for everyone in the industry, whether or not you're a business owner that's looking at exit or or a buyer or indeed an advisor who's listening in. I think you'll find that there's a lot in this for you. From the advisor perspective, I think really we, we cover some ground here that is very useful in terms of pointing to those extra skills and maybe those softer side questions that we should be working our clients through in terms of having real empathy with the emotional process that they're going through and some of the issues that might occur along the way after completion. And from the perspective of if you're an owner or of a business or or a buyer of a business, I think this episode is really useful for you in terms of pointing out some of the things that can go wrong uh, so you're aware from the outset. So look, whether or not you're um, an accountant, a lawyer, um, a broker or advisor listening in or a business owner or buyer yourself, I think all of you are going to find this episode really interesting because it really hones in on a lot of important questions and issues for us all to consider. So buckle in, let's chat to Greg. Ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. You're listening to The Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions. Get across trends in the area. And hear the industry's best recount their real-life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki. Okay, Greg, welcome on to the show. Thank you. Great. Okay. So today we're talking about your own business acquisition experience, which I'm really excited to talk about because, of course, we, oh, we've we had you on the show before and, uh, and, and it's great hearing from advisors about the advisor perspective, but I just think it's such a unique perspective to be able to look into someone who is wearing the hats of advisor and client all in one to, you know, reframe the experience because we have experiences of, as advisors and experiences as clients. And um, I'm really interested to digging into how it feels to be combining these two hats or sitting in sitting on the other side of the table, I guess. So maybe why don't you kick it off by giving us a bit of a background before we then talk about this business acquisition experience. Yeah, for sure. So um, I'm I'm the principal of a firm called Armstrong Dawson. We're a full service accounting firm. Um, do all the usual things that accounting firms do. 
Um, previous background, I was a partner at PwC for close to 10 years before Armstrong Dawson was set up. Armstrong Dawson has about 20 people in it. Um, and uh, we uh, advise clients on not only tax and accounting, but all other business and, 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 and financial aspects in terms of what they need to run their business and uh, perform well. Great. Okay. And, and you know, I know we've had many discussions before and interactions um, in relation to shared clients who are buying and selling businesses. So, so you've been around the traps in M&A and business sales and acquisition. So, you, you're no, no baby to the area. But maybe tell us a little bit about your experiences when you actually did it yourself. So, what, what was the business? What were you buying? When, when did this all happen? Yeah, for sure. So about 18 months ago, we um, went through, uh, I guess, a planning process like most businesses do. And um, part of our business that we felt we needed to beef up a little bit was a, a business that, um, one, did a little bit of bookkeeping work because Armstrong Dawson doesn't do any bookkeeping and we've had a bit of demand for that service. But more importantly, when I was a partner at PwC, we did a lot of uh, what we call then inbound multinational work. So where a, a business overseas had an established business, wanted to uh, set up a subsidiary or a division in, in, in Australia and wanted an accounting firm here locally to help them, help them set that up. Um, we didn't really do any of that type of work in Armstrong Dawson because that was predominantly local Australian-based work. But um, we wanted to get more into that type of work for two reasons. One, we had a lot of our local clients going overseas, so we wanted to, I guess, get some um, relationships with overseas accountants, but also uh, from our experience, we knew exactly what to do and the issues and experiences in, in, in forming a business within Australia. And so we were, tr we, were, we were looking for a business that provided those services. We looked around for about six months and found a business about 14 months ago that wasn't one of the big four or second tier accounting firms, but basically solely did that type of business. And there was a, a lady in that business that was um, looking at a succession plan. And so it neatly fitted into the business plan we were looking at and her business plan of um, looking to create a staged exit. So um, we look to transact on that deal. Excellent. Okay. All right. So you probably walked into this area thinking, you know, I've advised many clients in this area in the past. So I'm feeling like I'm going to be all over this. <laughs> was that the feeling? <laughs> yeah, it was. We've been, well, I mean, like most accounts, we had been on the buy or sell side of numerous transactions and um, knew the process, knew the different parts of how this would work knew, I guess, all of the, the, the fundamental legal agreements that needed to be done and um, uh, the due diligence that we needed to go through on, on, on that business in order to protect ourselves. And so we started to go down the, the track of doing all of the things to tick the boxes we knew that had to happen, mm, so to speak. Mm, mm. What did you find out and what did you learn from the experience, do you think? Yes, I was a number of things, I guess. I guess, firstly, when your um, accountant or as part of the transaction, while you're uh, one cog in a wheel of a number of different advisors that work towards an outcome, typically you are just focusing on your, your piece or what you're advising on. So from an accounting point of view, obviously in other transactions, we were just focusing on 
the tax or the structuring side because that was all we were primarily responsible for. We had to talk to other advisors, but our piece of the puzzle was just that piece. Whereas in this transaction, obviously, we were the ones briefing or guiding the lawyers on agreements, looking at uh, the due diligence in terms of the other business, um, making sure that certain things weren't missed and were, and were, were picked up. So we're in an interesting situation where um, most clients don't know anything about the process, so they're very reliant on advisors, whereas because we knew a little bit particularly about the legal side and other side, or at least enough to be dangerous, so to speak, we obviously, um, you know, we're, we're trying to, in a way, second-guess sometimes what the other advisors were doing and, and really, from our experience, probably prompting them on things that they were aware of. But it really became interesting where I guess we started, we were one of those clients that, um, that were trying to do the right thing, but we're also, in some respects, getting a little bit in the way of the advisors because we were saying, well, we know how to do this. So it was... It was like, um, I guess, uh, you know, trying to build a house with uh, with a builder. When you're a builder yourself, you're sort of a little bit more critical and a little bit more, um, I guess, um, pedantic about certain things because you know what has to be done and what hasn't had to be done. Mm, yeah, I completely get it. <laughs> so obviously, just on things like um, time frames of agreements. Um, how, how, what should be in them, what shouldn't um, you do? Because obviously we know with certain agreements that are, are done, particularly from a legal point of view, there are standard approaches. So some of them are, uh, I guess, are templated and are, and, are, and are tailored to the certain transactions. So, well, obviously we, we knew that and so we would talk to the law firm about that and when they said, oh, you know, this agreement will take four weeks to prepare, and we'd say, well, look, we know you could get this done in the next week if you if you sort of focus on it. So that was one of the, I guess, um, uh, discussion points. I mean, to be fair, I think you were making a fair point. <laughs> <laughs> For four weeks does sound a bit long. Yeah. But, um... So also there were certain things where um, uh, because of that sort of knowing a little bit to be dangerous, there were also things where I guess we were – prompting advisors on certain things that we felt they may have should have known but probably um, didn't have the background or experience that we had or maybe we focused on certain things that we felt were critical risks where the advisor may not have felt it was as critical as we did. So there was a bit of difference in terms of how the process worked and I I think in, in hindsight it's probably easier to be totally naive to a whole lot of things or obviously be a specialist in something because where you do have a little bit of knowledge sometimes it can get in the way of moving things through in a in a more smoother process I think I think you're absolutely right and it's, it's an interesting point but you know many businesses that are at the point of exit or businesses that are acquiring for growth in both of those instances generally they're operated quite often they're operated by people who have a lot of business experience so I guess your perspective is talking about the actual transaction experience of M&A. But I think the issues that you're talking about can also apply to many people who have really strong business experience and and therefore also 
I think perhaps maybe have some of the challenges that you're talking about, you, you know, and I'm not suggesting you're coming in from a Bush lawyer approach, but you have a bit of uh, an overview and then I, I guess wherever there is this second mm. guessing between advisor and client, you know, it can become a little bit tricky. But I, I guess it's also about understanding how to manage people with different mm different knowledge mm. of the process and different different drivers in terms of the amount of detail that they want to be involved in as well. I, I don't know if that was an issue for you, but one of the things, you, you know, I, I know accountants really like detail and some business owners don't. So, so I guess as advisors, we're always really trying to work out how to change our approach in order that we can meet the requirements of a client, whether or not it's a high detail requirement or a lower detail, you just take care of it type requirement. And maybe what you're talking about here is the relationship between you and your advisor at that point, maybe not necessarily meeting that or you not knowing how to meet that or communicate it perhaps. Yeah, correct. And I I guess it's on both sides and I'll talk about the sort of the, the transaction side in a minute. But with the advisor side, just reflecting on it, it's like when... Um, I guess because we were emotionally invested in this transaction, it's like when if you're doing something for someone else, you can be a little bit subjective and unemotional. So you've got a lot more, I guess, clearer thoughts. But when you're in the middle of it yourself, um, it's you're a lot more emotionally invested. So obviously the relationship, the communication, how things are, are sort of brought up or, or not brought up is, is a lot different than if we were sort of standing on the outside. Um, the other thing, being a client in this respect rather than being an advisor, really did show us and made us think about how we service our clients and just how we can make it easier for them. Little things like um, instead of, um, I guess, just dumping an agreement on a client, maybe having, for want of a better word, a one-page summary on top with just the key critical or key issues. So you're really just focusing on what's important, not some of the minutiae that might be there for best practice, but it's not something that really the client has to get involved in, in terms of the discussion. So there was a number of little things which I guess made us as advisors a, a, a lot more aware of the client journey during the transaction and just knowing when to sort of be in their face and knowing when to step back because... Um, uh, sometimes people just want to have a phone call, even if there's no news to say, look, there's no news, just wanted to give you a call to say everything's tracking well. And just little things like that were really interesting to us as to how we went on the journey. So I'd like to just dig into that area a bit more. You've given a couple of examples, which I really like, you know, the, the summary of high-level high items, although, you, you know, that can be easier said than done, but I think it's a really good point. And, and the, the importance of that human communication, which I think you're absolutely right in. And, and I guess this is as applicable to you're probably here talking about your interaction with your legal team. It's as relevant for the interaction that an accountant has with their clients in, in this process and with the relationship the broker or, or the advisor has with their clients as well. And quite often I find that the broker or advisor, depending on their style, but quite often they are the best at keeping 
that close communication with their clients because they're really invested in this getting across the line. <laughs> and of course, you know, it's something that we really focus on our approach, this concept of high level personal communication and using the phone rather than sort of emails forwards and backwards forever. But I'd just like to drill a little bit into what else um, is in there. What other things did you see along the way that you know, maybe you changed your approach as an accountant because I think that might be particularly interesting to some of our accountants who are listening in to think about. Yeah, so from, I guess, putting the advisor, the transaction piece to one side, I guess just in terms of us buying this business, um, look, at the end of the day, we knew uh, the process was going to work. We had all the agreements in place. Everything was um, protected and and, and um and addressed in terms of um, sale and indemnities and all those sort of things. So that was all great. But there's what people tend to forget or what we sort of not forgot but didn't sort of, um, uh, I guess, think that it would be such a big piece was uh, humans are involved in this. So when we, when we bought the business, one of the things that we just took for granted was that I guess the culture and the way the other firm did business. So I'm not talking about their systems or processes or their outputs or whether their work was right or wrong or or how things drove, but just the whole vibe in the office, in the other office that is, and the culture was, while we, it was similar to us and being an accounting firm, it was very different in terms of just the approach and how they looked at things like, how quickly they responded to clients or um, how things were done on, on emails or little things like that, which, to be honest, those are the little things that not only are important but also the little things that tick people off when you start to change things or start to move things around. And so when we sort of look to um, get some efficiencies and synergies by trying to overlay some of our systems and processes and also don't get me wrong, um, improve our business with their systems and processes, that's where there was a lot of, I guess, uh, standoffs in terms of saying, well, no, our way's better, no, your way's better. And it was a very interesting process in terms of um, actually consummating the transaction from a day-to-day perspective. And so one of the things that has made me a significant better advisor now is that even if all of the numbers stack up, the legal agreements are all in place, all those things tick the boxes, we go into a lot more detail about uh, how the two parties, if the, if the other party is going to stay in the business, how the two parties are going to work together. And I guess just that day-to-day marriage of two people or, or persons coming together to work together. So it's like I, I use the old adage that... Um, that until you, like even a couple, until they actually move in together, you don't really know um, the true person until you've moved in and lived with them. And the same thing that with two businesses, you can do all the DD in the world, but until you've merged together and now you're one business, you just don't know how the two will work together. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. And and it's interesting you, you're talking, uh, I, I guess, uh, in some sense about the business as a whole and, and, and bringing on board the owner of the business is e- equally as applicable wherever there's some sort of 
phase out period. And, you know, it it only need be a short phase out period. But during those phase out periods, a lot of things can go wrong if you're not on top of working out how to integrate the culture. I see it so often, and it's a vexed issue because people dealing with people as a whole can be a complicated issue. But I think you're absolutely right in that the discussions need to be part of the whole process. So you all understand how it's going to work in, in practice when, when this day of merge occurs. And one of the other things that really um, highlighted to us in terms of, um, I mean, obviously both parties came into the deal with the right goodwill and expectations, but a, a really good example was is that part of the deal, there was a there was an earn out as part of the deal in terms of the consideration, which triggered after 12 months. And so one of the things on our part, we wanted to make sure that everything was done in order for that earn out to trigger. Um, you know, the last thing we wanted to do was to undermine that. But equally, there were a number of things that had to take place in the business in order to improve and change the business. But those things, if they took place or changed, may have had an impact on the results of the business, which then in turn would have had an impact on the earn out. So we were a little bit we were a little bit in sort of a holding pattern for sort of six to twelve months because we could see that while changes had to be made, we could also see that by making them, it'd have an impact on the earnout to the former owner. And so there was this, I guess, um, tension around, well, how quickly do we change, but then it's going to have a financial impact on the earnout. So usually we would advise clients um, on our side not to look at earnouts, to try to get as much of the money up front because an earnout in our, in our um, experience hardly ever triggers. In our experience with this, it did trigger, but it was very much to the uh, to the detriment of ourselves by actually holding back on some changes so the earnout or the party would have the best possible chance of actually getting that earnout because the former owner did retain a small percentage of the business going forward. And so if that earnout didn't trigger, it it would have had a um a uh, an issue or in terms of would have had a uh, a fallback in terms of the ongoing relationship so if the if the if the if the former owner was out entirely at the initial transaction we probably wouldn't have been so uh, uh, wary of the of the earnout not triggering or triggering but because that person was still involved we wanted to make sure that again there was goodwill in the relationship and we were obviously trying on our part to make sure that the earnout triggered as well. Yeah. So it's interesting, isn't it? Some really interesting comments and ideas on earnouts here. I mean, number one, earnouts generally are seen for the buyers a great mechanism of a bit of risk protection should um, should the revenue not continue or, or increase or however you've worked the earnout. But it's interesting that in this instance, it may potentially have created the perverse outcome of uh, reducing the control that you had over the um, the direction that you wanted to take the business. So I think that's a really good point for buyers in there. And I guess from the seller's perspective, I'm hearing in this an interesting point that you're making that you as the buyer were more motivated to try and ensure the earnout was triggered because of the 
continuing relationship with the seller so uh, because they were still part of the business. So I guess from a seller perspective, here's some uh, tips on maybe how you increase the likelihood of an earnout triggering by retaining that relationship, whether that's by equity or some other way, you, you know, maybe that's part of the area that you can help encourage the triggering of an earnout. But as we all know, <laughs> it can be very difficult to merge personalities and, and people. I mean, I've heard the saying many times that once you've run a business all on your own for, I can't remember what the figure is, five years, eight years, whatever, you become effectively unemployable. And at that point, it becomes very hard for you to change your work practices. So, you know, perhaps also a a reflection is that that is something to consider when you're sitting down and looking at a business purchase that may involve an ongoing relationship between two owners or or multiple owners, how are they going to work together if they've not had control, uh, you know, been the subject of control for the whole period of time that they've been building this business? I guess maybe maybe that's something else in the in the in the elements of consideration. Oh, you're spot on there, Joanna. That um just as you were saying that, I was smiling to myself because um the, the person that owned this business that continued on with us, they had been in business for over 15 years, had, had really just been reporting to themselves, never had a, well, hadn't had a boss in that time. When we came in, we had a majority share. So we were in effect, um, you know, if there was a stalemate, then we would, we would be the ones making the decision. And so this person reported into um, us in a way and it created a lot of tension, particularly around what they saw as important and what we saw as important. And, and again, it would probably in hindsight, so we wanted to keep the former owner involved as some protection for ourselves in order to make sure that any goodwill in the business didn't didn't sort of dilute. In hindsight, it probably would have been um, easier for us to just let the former owner go right up front. It would have been a little bit more hard work in the initial couple of months, but in that a 12, 24-month process after that, it would have made it so much easier in terms of moving the business forward. And I think what you're talking about here is probably the more common experience than the experience of everyone just getting on (laughs) hunky-dory. Because it's it's such a big thing, isn't it? For particularly for exiting business owners who, as we've been saying, you know, are used to a long period of being the boss and having control and having no one to report to. But it's also, you know, businesses are something that as business owners become almost a part of us in many ways. So there's a lot of emotion involved for, I think, exiting owners as well. I mean, obviously, generally, they come to that position because of a choice and the benefits that that choice is bringing to them. But that doesn't completely erase the fact that it's in many ways like a limb on their body, like one of their children, and they have very strong ways about how it should be run. And, and and I think sometimes that can cause real butting of heads. So I guess as advisors, um, maybe our role is to make sure that we're really clear with our clients about the reality of these issues. Yeah, so we're a lot more 
focused and talk to clients about the soft side. The other thing is, is that like in all transactions, when a um, you know the other party staying involved, I mean, we caught up with them, we had lunches and dinners with them to get to know them a little bit better. But you don't, I mean, everyone. It's like going on a first date. Everyone's on their sort of best behaviour and 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 you know doing what they need to do. But once you, I guess, you don't know how they will be day to day at work, and obviously. Um, because uh, the former owner wants to keep the transaction um, uh, confidential until it actually goes through, you can't necessarily go in and talk to their staff or whatever the case may be. But if I had the opportunity over again and and, and we were allowed to do this, I definitely would have um, interviewed some of the staff in that business to get us to get sort of get some three sixty feedback on the owner just to get a sense of what we were walking into. Um, the owner may not have allowed us to do that, but um, it would have given us a significant insight that maybe would have changed the way or the actual decision within the business that in terms of what we did. So it really comes down to that personality piece. And what I find is that whether it's advising on a transaction, a divorce, or whatever the case may be, that emotional piece can really drive things that will, I guess, um, be focused on and really drive people's behaviours and other things that will just let go and, and really uh, not be focused on at all. So it's it's really, really interesting that um, we walk through with clients now a couple of, I guess, key questions around some of that softer side and emotional side that even though they may brush it off quite quickly initially, once you start talking to experiences and some of the examples that I've just given, it does really um, make them think about those things and at least consider it more than what they previously have done. So it's interesting. So you've now turned this into something that is a process in the way that you deal with your clients. Is that right? Definitely. And the other thing is, is that, um, look, most advisors, as I said, in the past, we would have focused on our little piece of the puzzle being the accounting, tax and structuring. What a client, and when that happens, usually then the client has to be, I guess, the consolidator of all those different advisors to make sure that things are working smoothly together. What we found is, is that where there was advisors that didn't, again, have to be experts in all different fields, but where we worked with advisors that did have a, an appreciation for some of the, say, if they were an accountant, had an appreciation for the legal side or the legal or the lawyers having an appreciation for the accounting and tax, I knew a little bit about it. It really made the, 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 the transaction a lot more um, streamlined because there were other people considering other things that may or may not need to be looked at that if you were just focusing on your one little area, really it would have to be the client that would have to actually look at the gaps between the different advisors and make sure that those things are picked up. So, it was, again, it was just interesting how disjointed it can be at that smaller end of town because this wasn't a big transaction by any means, that um, you really have to make sure that that the crossover of the advisors, there's, there's someone conscious of those things that are that are between the cracks so that someone's acknowledging them and, and actually going to deal with them. 
Yeah, I think you are absolutely 100% correct. And I think the best deals come from United advising teams. So, and I think that relationship between the team as a whole, um, you know, the team of advisors and, and the client is such an important element. And as you say, it prevents issues from occurring in the first place. But of course, when issues occur, then it also allows them to be dealt with a lot quicker. So I completely agree with you. Absolutely. Yes. And what we do now, Joanna, just to butt in there, is that we, as just as part of our change in our process, if there is a business sale, we would very quickly at the start of the process, we want to get into a room with all the advisors now. So we say, bring your lawyer in, bring your broker in, we'll come in, we want to sort of do a bit of a, a plan, if I can use that term, in terms of um, what are the risks here so we can all be on the same page, who's doing what, how about some of these issues that fall between the cracks. It not only makes the advisors working together a lot more streamlined, but it's so powerful when you have that meeting, and we've done it a couple of times now, where all of a sudden it just makes the left and the right hand knows what's going on. It actually makes the transaction not only go better, but the client feels so much more confident as part of the process. Mm, mm, That's a really good point. So that sounds like a a really clear process that you've created. Are there any, you talked earlier about that there's, in your discussions with your clients, you now have particular questions that walk them through the softer side. What are those types of questions that you ask? So we we ask questions, and this this really pertains if the former owners are going to stay involved, or if it's some sort of joint venture or partnership type of approach. Because obviously you then have to work with those people ongoing. So we do ask them questions about the other firm's culture and if they can see any differences between their existing culture. But but a lot around the individual or individuals themselves in terms of different management styles, different ways of taking risks or not taking risks, whether they're detailed or whether they're a little bit laissez-faire in terms of some of the ways that they do things. Because while um, differences um, coming together can create a strength in terms of the, the opposing differences, it can also cause friction and frustration. So it's just around some of those things. Again, we're not psychologists. We can't, you know, we're not delving into people's personalities and those things, but we are raising certain questions again just so the clients are going into it eyes wide open. Look, i tell you what, Greg, I think this has been such a useful episode. I think the things that you're talking about are just really really of deep importance to how we as advisors together can, you know, really help drive our clients into more successful deals. And, you know, I mean, that's what we're doing at the end of the day, right? We're we're trying to reduce risk and increase the success of a deal. (laughs) And, And these things you're talking about are just so, I mean, so many advisors know the black and white process of, okay, here's due diligence, this is what we need to do, here's the transaction, this is what we put in our transaction documents. But it's this 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 connective tissue, these soft this soft side, these these extra elements that you're talking about that that I think at the end of the day make the absolute difference. And and of course I guess now with hindsight, you perhaps maybe would have made a few different choices, but but I guess out of it, it's shone a light on something that 
then has enabled you to create something that is of really deep value to your clients. So I guess it's sort of a happy, sad story. <laughs> because similar to you probably, Joanna, that, you know, we get clients that um, as part of the process will, I guess, ask are these things important or whatever and and those are really highlighted to me. So a, a classic one is, and it was an interesting comment um, a lawyer made from us. So obviously we made sure and wanted, and so did obviously the law, the legal team, that all the agreements um, totally protected us and et cetera, et cetera, so that um, when when there was some struggles and things went a little bit pear-shaped, we could obviously all look to those agreements to give us guidance and where where things should, should lie or outcomes be placed. But it was also really interesting to us that um, where there were very clear outlines in agreements as to this is what we've agreed to, this is going to be the outcome, when those agreements were challenged, um, the, the outcome of that, of that challenge was that in, in a way, um, and, and it'd be interesting, you know, this is not you giving legal advice, but it's interesting the, the advice that we got was that well, if, if the agreement is going to be, say, sued upon or is going to be challenged to a term, even if you're in the right, which we were and we because we followed the agreement to the letter of the law, I mean, you still have to sometimes defend yourself against that agreement, even though you're in the right, to prove you're right. It's still going to cost you money. It's still going to go through the process. And so sometimes, even when you're right, it's still going to cost you money and you still have to sometimes just um, suck your ego up and move on, even though you're sort of admitting defeat, even though you're right. So it's a very, very, it's just given me a so much different insight as to when to dig your heels in, when to follow through, when there might be a term in there that a, that a lawyer might say, this is extremely important. But in a practical sense, sometimes it doesn't really matter. So it's really given us a really good insight. Yeah, yeah. You know what? You are absolutely. That's absolutely correct. I guess the the thing with disputes and litigation is people will often put them at themselves at the point. Well, how how what will the answer be when we're in court? And and the problem that I have with litigation is that there's no watertight case. Like there's no there's never an absolute. Uh, you, you can never have absolute conviction of what an outcome will be, uh, or, or that's it's not true to say never, but or, but rarely um, can you be absolutely sure when we're talking about contracts and contract interpretation. But it's not so much. Uh, I think at the end of the day, what the what a court would decide. It's often that there there is a legal answer that perhaps can be a little bit grey but there's a commercial answer and, and it's always about using the contract that we have to give us enough power to move the commercial needle yeah yeah and i guess that's what we're doing with contracts we're setting up the environment not so much i mean obviously you want the contract to you want your strength to be in the legal arg- argument if you end up in court but very few matters will end up in court uh, generally you know you'll find a way around it because quite frankly court is not a great place to to be you know <laughs> i don't think it's very expensive but what you do want is to have as many chips on your side mm. so that you can have the power position in that commercial bargaining that happens when disputes occur. And just following on from that, which, um, which I assume you would highly concur to, so um, 
it's it's so much harder to change anything once the deal is done. So it is really important to, I guess, spend a little bit more money or time up front to get those protections or those terms in the agreements, um, as much of them in as possible because it just gives you also, on the flip side, so much more strength when, you know, there's a term in the agreement that both parties have signed up to. It's extremely clear as to where the outcome should be and um, that gave us a lot of confidence in terms of when some of those um, differences started to appear because we did spend significant time, detail, in terms of making sure it was right um, and, and, and it was worth its weight in gold. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, find good and get a and get a good agreement. <laughs> I, well, of course, I absolutely concur with you there. But um, you know, the the way I see it is disputes arise almost always only because there is some element of ambiguity. So if you can take away the ambiguity, really you take away, you know, almost all likelihood of disputes. Of course, there's things outside of that, but that's, you know, as a rule, that that's generally what we find. So you're absolutely right. Spending the time and getting the clarity from the beginning, ensuring that you've covered all of the important questions and issues, then creates this checklist that you can go back and refer to when, um, when you want to ensure there's no ambiguity as to which each of you should be doing. And what and, and from that, I guess what we're really big on now, so obviously um, on both sides of the fence, the buy or the sell side, typically a client will come to us and they'll want to, you know, save on transaction costs, either save on legals or save on, a, on accounting and tax. And so they won't want to be the instructors in terms of the legal, um, the legal um, firm. But what we found is that the other party had that had that um, had that viewpoint. So we were the ones that that had all the legal agreements drafted, and obviously they took those agreements and and either edited them or or, or came back to us on amendments. But the power in us actually having the our legal team were the ones initially drawing it up, and us putting all of the terms that we felt were important in there first, even though it probably costed us a little bit more money in doing that again we were in the driver's seat to have our terms our agreements our clauses in there they may have been challenged or tried to be struck out when they went to the other side but it's a lot more powerful when you've got an agreement that's already written than being on the other side trying to strike something out Oh, yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. Oh, look, I mean, ironically, we usually find on our side that it it takes us less time to be in the driver's seat and to create the drafts and send them out than it does to go through someone else's material, find the holes, fill the holes, and then get what we need in there. Ironic, but reality that quite often what seems to be the approach that will cost more is actually a less costly option, but far more uh, advantageous for you or for our clients in um, having their drafting out first. So, it's really good point. Yeah. So, to your point, I'd be I wouldn't be too fussed if I was a client to say, okay, you know, it's going to cost me this in legal fees to get the agreements done um, because it's just so much more powerful. And as you said trying to, from a, and this is again putting my advisor hat on, reviewing someone else's work and the, and the amount of, of, I guess, review and, and focus you have to have to do that. It's so much easier when you know your own agreements, what's in, what's out, 
Um, it just makes the process so much easier. So I would advise a client now if they said, well, should we get the other side or should we take the lead on the legal agreement? I'd definitely be tell them, do the legal agreement yourself. It'll make the process from your end anyway so much simpler. I love it. We're all singing from the same hymn book. This is absolutely fabulous. <laughs> all right. Well, look, Greg, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. I think we've covered some really important topics here that, that I think um, are just so relevant to, you know, businesses buying and selling, the accountants, the advisors, the lawyers, the um, brokers and corporate advisors. So we've really covered the field here. Good work. <laughs> Any parting thoughts from you, Greg? Um Going into a business sale or business purchase is um, is just like, um, I guess, going into a, a marriage in my view that there is going to be a, a connection there and you really do significantly, if the other party is staying involved, make sure you know the other party. If the other party is not staying involved, then you can go as, um, you know, as sort of clinical and subjective as you want. So just just be aware of that. I love it. Well, look, Greg, if our um, listeners are looking for an accountant to assist them in um, a sale or acquisition, how can they find you? So they can uh, find me from our website, um, Armstrong Dawson, www.armstrongdawson.com.au, or uh, send me an email on gwill at armstrongdawson.com.au, and, and, and hopefully I can help them out. Brilliant. Okay, wonderful. Well, thanks again for coming on to the program. I think we have you coming up in a future episode as well, talking all about business structuring for exit and the tips and tricks there, which I just think is such a critical topic. So I'm really excited to have you uh, back to talk about all of those considerations in structuring leading into a sale. Looking forward to it. Brilliant. Thanks, Greg. Well, that's it for this episode of the Deal Room Podcast with Greg Will from Armstrong Dawson. Now, if you want to get in contact with Greg, all you have to do is head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com and look for this episode or just go to your show notes and we will link straight through to Greg at Armstrong Dawson. And at that website, thedealroompodcast.com, you'll also find details of how to contact our lawyers at Aspect Legal. If you or your clients would like to discuss any legal aspects of sales or acquisitions. And finally, if you enjoyed what you heard today, then we'd be really grateful if you would pop over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player that you're listening to this from right now and leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the content. We'd love to hear from you. And also, don't forget to hit subscribe. So every time a new episode is out, which is every Tuesday, um, you'll get it straight to your phone or your favorite listening device. Well, that's it. Thanks again for listening in to the Deal Room podcast brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. See you next time. Aspect Legal has a number of great services that help businesses prepare for a sale or acquisition to help them prepare in advance and to get transaction ready. We've also got a range of services to help guide businesses through the sale and acquisitions process. We work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. We provide a free consultation to discuss your proposed sale or acquisition. 
So see our show notes on how to book a time to speak with us or head over to our website at aspectlegal.com.au. Ladies and gentlemen, that will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening to The Deal Room Podcast. To find out more about this episode and other episodes in the series, check out the show notes or head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com.au. 